Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. History fans, and welcome to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast. Come with us as we delve into historical topics, big and small, strange and obscure, earth shattering, and maybe a little spooky. <laughs> with your host Lauren <laughs> and Melissa, making Lauren crack up every single day. <laughs> Don't make me stop laughing. Every time I'm around you, my stomach hurts at the end of the day because I've been laughing so darn much. You had a pretty bad weekend, and you're welcome. How? <laughs> um. <laughs> MG. Okay. So, today's episode, we're going to be discovering the topic of Greek fire. <laughs> Stop with the sounds <laughs> and the faces. She's making faces at the same time, and she's sitting directly across from me, and I just, I can't. I can't, guys. My roommates also love my silly faces. Apparently, it makes me laugh. <laughs> it, I have an expressionable face, apparently. So do I, just in a very different format. <laughs> but uh, before we uh, delve into our main topic, we've got your weird history for today. Oh, God. And this one is a very good one. Ooh, or, ooh. or should I say a very droll one? <laughs> what? I'll get to it in just a second. Get to it. Get to it. So this one is in reference to medieval manuscripts, which if anyone's uh, ever even looked at a medieval manuscript, you know there's a ton of text and a ton of illustrations, and they're very big volumes because they're handwritten copies of other books. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> But, just like we have in textbooks today, and I'm sure you've seen in plenty of textbooks from high school, I hated it, but I think writing in textbooks is horrendous. Well, it's also sleep-inducing. Depends on the class. I liked history, obviously. I I liked history, too, but textbook history books? Sleep-inducing to me. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd rather... Read it. On I, ju- your I just own think personally, writing more fun writing in a in a textbook outside of maybe a math book and then erasing it, but writing inside or highlighting 
a textbook to me is blasphemous. It just ruins the book. See, I did all that because I wanted to highlight important sections that were important to me. Oh, I did that, except I photocopied the paper and then highlighted everything in code by color. Yeah, no, I just actually did it in the book <laughs> and then tabbed the page because I was like, oh, I can now easily find this. Can't see it. But if anyone's ever written in a textbook, obviously, or found a textbook, a whether it's from the library or a book from high school or a textbook that you got in college, everyone's doodled or written or something in the margins of the books. Nah, right? that's not a thing. What you talking about? No, I'm kidding. Medieval texts are of no difference. <laughs> in fact, not. it's very common to find what is actually known as marginalia, which are doodles and illustrations found in the margins of medieval textbooks. Pretty straightforward. There's actually a very common motif, and I showed you a picture earlier. There's a very, very common motif that runs through a variety of medieval texts, and we're talking mostly English, some French, and even Flemish medieval texts of giant snails and killer rabbits. <laughs> and and yes, the killer rabbits, giant snails, and killer rabbits. And if anyone's thinking of that Monty Python sketch with a killer rabbit, possibly where they got the inspiration from. Huh. I was thinking of Bonicula. Uh, well, Even though he's not really a killer rabbit. Just reminded me also, of Also, I don't think Bonicula... I think Bonicula came out after Monty Python and the Oh, Holy you Grail. think? <laughs> really? I just mm. immediately thought of Deadly Rabbit and Bonicula just came to my head. The themes that run in these margins are actually known as drollery. Which is just another word for having fun. That's droll, that's silly. So basically... Doodles. They were bored, and so they were doodling in the manuscript. Yeah, so probably most likely it were the, the illustrations in the margins were also the monks who were creating the text. But in, And we'll get into possibly what these depictions are a reference to. But at the very least, they were for fun. Mm-hmm. But it's something to do or to illustrate while you're also spending copious times copying manuscript after manuscript by hand and making illustrations by hand. Well, that sounds boring. Hence the doodles. But that also sounds extremely <laughs> blasphemous. Like, it's an ancient manuscript, but at the same time, they didn't think of it that way, so... Not at the time that they were creating it, no. So most of these, most of the marginalia in of itself comes from the... 1200s and into the 1300s. Now, eventually, it died out a bit in the 1300s, but made a resurgence back in the 1400s. But it was actually not really noticed as an overall concept until about 1850 by someone named Comte de Bastard. He's called a bastard? Comte de Bastard. Or a bastard, yeah. That was his, that was his, his, oh. his royal name, or, or, or his noble name. Oh, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe back then, I don't know. We'll get, there's, there's some more nicknames coming up, too. But he had theorized, because he had read through a couple, two manuscripts, not specific ones, I couldn't find any, but in two manuscripts that he had been looking to, he had found giant snail drolleries near text regarding the raising of Lazarus. So he theorized that the giant snails were a reference to the resurrection. <laughs> it's kind of the only one that kind of comes from there. Oh my mm. god. So when giant snails come along, the devil will be resurrected? Or, no, or Lazarus. So La- Christ, sorry, Lazarus. Christ will, be- Christ will resurrect 
the dead. I'm thinking, I'm thinking the other last name. Whatever. I don't know. The, the Jesus. So Jesus yeah. is going to be resurrected. Jesus is resurrecting the dead. The re- resurrected Lazarus was dead, and Jesus resurrected him from the yes. dead. Yeah. So the resurrection, Comte de Bastard decided that these were in reference to the resurrection because oh, they were next to they were illustrations next to about the raising of Lazarus. But the first Ugh. contemporary study was not written until about the eight, the, the 1960s by Lillian Randall, who actually put, and this is a fantastic name for a textbook. It makes sense. It's just the name of the text is great. Mm-hmm. Her published book is called Snails and Gothic Marginal Warfare. That's a fantastic title. Snails and Gothic Marginal Warfare. And we will definitely have pictures to this. Because oh, they're amazing, God. amazing, hilarious pictures. Oh, my goodness. And I actually found a quote that, and I couldn't find by who, but it's still a great quote. But it says, and I do mean all the time in reference to the snails. They're everywhere. Sometimes the night is mountain, sometimes not. Sometimes the snail is monstrous, sometimes tiny. Sometimes the snail is all the way across the page, sometimes right under the knight's foot. Usually the knight is drawn so that he looks worried, stunned, or shocked by his tiny foe. (laughs) Oh, my God. Giant snail, tiny snail. Uh, Snails! The drawings are hilarious. So, Lillian Randall, actually, she's a historian who was able to find at least 70, 70, 70 instances in 29 different manuscripts dating from the 12 to 1300s of various drolleries, specifically in referencing the snail, knighted knights in armor fighting giant snails. And then there's also a psalm, Psalm 58, which also references snails, which might be going back to the Comte de Bastard's resurrection theory. Mm -hmm. And Psalm 58 reads, Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. What? Uh Uh-huh. So it's referencing to knights who fight the wicked, who after the knights win over the wicked, the wicked will get their just rewards. And that is in reference by the medievalist Lisa Spangenberg. Okay. Yeah, there's a bunch of different theories out there. Some actually theorize that in reference to class oppression, the oppression of women, the oppression of different religions to just people having fun and dueling the margins to the resurrection to and then we'll get into the rabbits the rabbits are also believed to possibly represent cowardice so rabbits themselves are typically a symbol of purity helplessness and sometimes tied to the image of christ not sure how that works but i guess that's where the easter and the bunny come and i think easter bunny has nothing to do with the resurrection. That's a whole different thing. And that's a whole different topic. (laughs) But the particular genre with the rabbits is actually called the rabbit's revenge. (laughs) And it's not so much knights fighting rabbits, it's just humans being killed by rabbits. So (laughs) And so in that sense, the rabbit now has control and it's showing cowardice or stupidity towards the person being illustrated in these marginalia. And, in fact, the term, the, uh, the the nickname, the Middle English nickname, stick hair, is what you would call somebody when you're calling them a coward. What does stick hair have to do with rabbit? Because the marginalia also have rabbits beating people with sticks. Okay. But they do more than just beat people with sticks. Oh. So this one kind of gets a little... A little Gross? Gross. Just... just 
Uh, just letting you know. I don't want to imagine cute little bunnies with fluffy tails. Gross. Oh my god, this is more like suicide bunnies, but they're killing people. It's hilarious to me. All right. Because it, it's really it. more of, I, it, it's, it's sort of in reference to the upside down. So whereas typically rabbits are hunted, now the rabbits become the hunter. hunter. So in various illustrations of these killer rabbit genre, the ha- hunters are cowering to the rabbits or being killed by the rabbits. Sometimes with big sticks, there's actually a couple pictures of rabbits themselves riding giant snails, which is a fantastic picture. Okay. There's also illustrations of rabbits cutting people's heads off, hanging dogs. There's one I found with a, a rabbit actually wielding an axe. Poor puppy. Mm-hmm. And then there's also in, uh, depictions of rabbits actually impaling humans. Killer bunnies. Because we, killer bunnies. So in Manchester Cathedral as well, and again, most of those illustrations are actually just illustrations, but in the underside of a choir stall dating to the 15th century at Manchester Cathedral, this is a wood carving, and the underside of these stalls, there is a rabbit's revenge <laughs> illust- er, depiction of a hunter being spit-roasted by a bunch of rabbits. Wow. <laughs> I guess that's that's what they were doing mm-hmm. in that depiction. So we don't know why any of this actually occurs. Again, it could just be straightforward, as in it's just people having fun, or role reversal, like with the rabbits versus the hunters. The hunted becomes the hunter. I noticed that in human history, there's one thing we don't do. There's one thing we do, not don't do, sorry. There's one thing we do, and that it's that we're consistent in being weird. <laughs> with... All of our religions, we we talked about this in the last episode, actually. We have always have something connecting to the sky, the earth, the earth plane, and the afterlife, the underworld, however you want to describe that. There's always some version of it. Never changes. We're always performing some sort of a war. And then there is also the fact Maybe just doodling out of boredom was one of those things that we're consistent with in in our lives. Mm-hmm. One of my sources had a quote, and I just, I, I gotta read this because it's hilarious. And it's mostly in referencing to that the snails themselves are just a joke mm-hmm. or a drollery as they, they are. And it says, she suggests that perhaps the joke is that snails, with what shells they carry on their backs can hide away in, are some sort of parody of a highly armored chivalric foe. We're supposed to laugh at the idea of a knight being afraid of attacking such a heavily armored opponent. Silly knight, it's just a snail. A giant snail. (laughs) Or, in this case, the one in the picture I showed you earlier, two naked people jousting riding giant snails. Which will be up on our Instagram because it's a really hilarious picture. It's awesome. Oh my gosh. So weird. Well, speaking of killing people. Weird history. Our, our main topic for today is actually Greek fire. And we're going to be discussing what was Greek fire, how was Greek fire used, and what happened to it. Mm-hmm. So let's do it. Greek fire. I don't know about you, but I have that Greek fire was mainly, or at least the most famous Greek fire that we know of, was mainly during the Byzantine era. Byzantine emperors, when Constantinople was not Istanbul, that came later. So If anyone's going to get that stone stuck in their head, it's been stuck in my head for hours now. So, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) What came around 678 CE 
common era. Mm -hmm. Just so we're not confused, CE, AD, they're one and the same. It's talking about after the birth of Christ, after the year, after the death of Christ, actually, I'm sorry, after the year zero. Mm -hmm. It was made up of secret ingredients that were guarded jealously. Well, secretly enough that in the reign of Emperor, Emperor Romanos II, who reigned from 959 to 963 AD, had made a declaration that three things should never, ever fall to the enemy hands. The number one being Byzantine imperial regalia. Number two, no royal princess shall ever fall to the enemies. And number three, Greek fire shall never fall to the enemies. Well, they succeeded in not handing one over to the enemies, which the, was the, Greek fire. Yes, the first the first two were often, uh, occasionally at least, exchanged with the enemies. In trade and other things, too. What they did was they... It, was such a perfect weapon in so many ways because it ate everything that it touched, basically. This was a napalm-like medieval flamethrower that could set water on fire and not be put out by fire. You mean it couldn't be put out by water? Sorry, well, yes, water. You could, you could light water on fire and you couldn't put it out with water. Basically, if this Greek fire touched water, it actually burned even more. Mm -hmm. Like, it burned hotter. Yeah. And just spread quicker. And basically, everything it touched didn't matter. Dog, human, wood, ocean, life. It didn't matter. If it touched you, you died. Yeah. There were uh, There's many, many accounts of, I think, mostly from Arabian accounts, because the Byzantine more, I think, attacked the... The Arabs and Muslim cities than they did mostly. They ended up fighting against the Russians and Bulgars, but there are a lot of accounts from the enemy of the Byzantines that stated the soldiers or anyone, the sailors on the ships, preferred to have jumped off ship and drowned themselves rather than risk dying in the fire of Greek fire. Because there are actually two ways that the Byzantines used Greek fire. And one of them was as a bomb, essentially, it was a clay pot, a sort of pressurized clay pot, that when broken, exploded with fire. Basically, sounds like a Molotov cocktail, very similar, but with yeah. Greek fire. Similar to a Molotov cocktail, definitely. And the second was essentially a siphon pump with a swivel nozzle that could shoot flames. Swivel essentially, nozzle. a medieval flamethrower. Yeah. And we had, I, had, I did find a video that was a reconstructed one, Mm -hmm. uh, a brief video that we will include in our source notes that you can watch to see how this reconstruction of Greek fire could have actually been used on a, a, a ship on the water. True, true. I mean, they, they mainly used it in naval warfare from what I got. It was mainly used, it was eventually adapted for land warfare, but mostly used for naval warfare because it could just destroy the ships. Anything it touched was just in flames in seconds. But we don't really know. Now, prior to... 678, which is its first known use as it is known to be Greek the, fire. It the was, famous Greek fire that ate everything. Right. It was had been in use during the Greek and Roman times. An, not adept, an early adaptation. A very early proto-version. But it wasn't until 678 when a gentleman named Kalinikos, who was a refugee from Syria, who, who came to Constantinople during a Muslim raid of Syria... By the way, 
Syria of that time is very different than the Syria on the map today. Right. So we'll have a map linked uh, to the ancient Syria. I think of the Byzantine. He's known as Kalinikos of Heliopolis, which makes me think that his city, at least, was probably at least Greek in origin, if not Greek held, and then the Muslims invaded and took over because his name is Greek, and the name city is also Greek, and hence the Greek fire. It's my thought that. The Greek fire was sort of named after him because he was an inventor and an architect, and he was able to perfect these essentially Molotov cocktails to the point where he combined a variety of ingredients. Now, we don't know the exact ingredients, but we have a, a list of what could possibly have been in them, but he helped to create what is medieval napalm and <laughs> since his name is greek and he comes from a greek named city i'm thinking it's sort of named after him as he's probably just possibly even known as the greek yeah i have a different source saying something else that's just my theory what's your source say well my source says that greek fire it was called started to be called greek fire during the crusader times which crusader times it just said Crusader times. Well, the Crusader Greek been, fire is different. Yes, it, it very well is, but it's saying that they started calling it Greek fire during the Crusader times. I don't know if that's true, untrue. Obviously, we don't have many written sources on this. So I would assume, I would go more along with your theory. It was a Greek, or a man of Greek origin that made it, or Kalenikos. It's very Greek-named. Heliopolis is pretty Greek. Paulus is definitely of Greek origin. Yeah. So I mean, it's the city of the sun. <laughs> Helios. So I would think that it's more of Greek. Greek fire because of its founder, I guess would be the right word in this mm -hmm. situation. Who knows? But before it came into use that Kalinikos' version came into use. It was also used in the first century in the Mithridatic Wars mm -hmm. by the kingdom of Pontus, actually. Right, which was a fight against the Romans. And even before the final version that we know of as Greek fire, which actually wasn't a final version, there were more versions later on, but the final version that we know of that Kalinikos made, there were several proto-versions, mm -hmm. several adaptations that came long before. I mean, first century think of that and then it's just perfected over time and Kalanigos just actually perfects it down to the perfecting tea that you can do. Well I think more of the perfection was the flamethrower siphon pump in it itself because that's cool. Well I, I found a source that said the ships were outfitted with these essentially apparatus types and apparently they were quite complicated because at one instance and I didn't have a specific date but one of the Byzantine ships with this siphon pump had been captured by the Bulgars, which Bulgaria, so essentially what they would have probably called Russians or pre-Russians, because they did fight Russians at the same time. It was a lot, a lot of people fighting people. But the Bulgars captured this war. Ship. Yeah, just that word should explain it all. Yeah, war. Yeah, but the Bulgars couldn't figure out how to use the siphon pump. They couldn't figure out how to use this flamethrower. So apparently, it was somewhat complicated to actually use. But once you are able to handle it, you could decimate. And I don't mean the actual definition decimate. It's a great <laughs> form of destruction. It's incredibly, yeah. But also, there was not just Molotov cocktail versions, but enemies, instead of getting hold of the recipe, 
to make this concoction. They got a hold of the concoction itself in some form sometimes, but they could never reverse it and actually create Greek fire from the source they had. Right. I mean, as we said, there's a variety of different ingredients thought to have been in it, and they could range... Obviously, it's very likely to have contained some kind of petroleum or naphtha, naphtha being a key ingredient in napalm. (laughs) And others included quicklime, sulfur, potassium nitrate, pitch, which is just another word for tar, pine or cedar specific resin mm-hmm. and bitumen as well too and so you mix the, all these together but again it's incredibly it's not just deadly to use it's deadly to mix because it literally is an explosive so if you're not incredibly careful about your mixtures you could not only kill yourself or the people around you too mm-hmm. or, or possibly blow up the building that you're working in. Well, also, if you mishandled it in the middle of war, mm-hmm. you could hurt so, your own You could set your own friendly, ship on fire. You could set your own ship on fire. You could set one of your, your friendly ships on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, like, friendly fire, I guess, in the, that idea. Right. But in the literal sense of the word, friendly fire. Right. Because if, as we said, this was a naval warfare weapon, majorly, and if the sea was choppy... If it was too windy out, anything that could set this off in the wrong direction. Well, I think that's why the siphon pump was created, so that you could have better control over firing it. That would make sense. And in fact, at one point you were talking about the Crusades. During the Fourth Crusade, in 1274, during the siege of Constantinople, Greek fire was actually used on unmanned ships that were set alight and then just sent towards the enemy flagships. Woohoo! So you just just take them all out. waste that wood. (laughs) <laughs> and, in fact, I've got sources that say after 1204, which is the end of the Fourth Crusade, that at least the record of creating Greek fire or any recordings of having used Greek fire mm-hmm. are no longer. So I don't, and we'll get to this in the theory section, but I, I don't think that so much Greek fire died out. We also have a couple later instances, I think you said during the Seventh Crusade, but I don't think so much that the, the recipe just stopped being used. Now, it was passed on from emperor to emperor, mm-hmm. but obviously the emperors are not making these things. They have people to do it for them, mm-hmm. but you also had your own theory as to what could have happened. But... It, I don't think that it just stopped. I just think that the records were either lost or destroyed in some kind of fashion. We just don't have any records after 1204 lost, of it being specifically used. Lost, destroyed. I had a theory pertaining to the scientists that were making right. the Greek fire concoction because it was such a heavily guarded secret in the idea that it could be transferred to the enemy with someone who stayed too long or something like that. Infiltration, even. Infiltration. Either way, you know, a form of... I was thinking, you know, maybe the scientists were possibly murdered, but in order to keep the secret safe, and then someone new was brought in, like a constant changing, and then once you got used to it, kind of theory... (laughs) It's still feasible. You kill people killed for less. Oh yeah, we still do sometimes. So if it was that closely guarded of a secret, that would not surprise me, especially in the medieval times. And when you're constantly at battle with war, mm-hmm. and the Crusades going on, and you're the Byzantine Empire, it would not surprise me. Yeah, that, you're essentially that the, you're, you're you're the extension of what used to be the Roman Empire. It would not surprise me. Of course, actually, now you're the Roman Empire of Christ. <laughs> 
<laughs> but as we were saying, also, water didn't extinguish this. However, it was discovered that heavy cloth or leather that had been, been soaked, soaked in vinegar. vinegar. Now, these were coming from Would Arabian... Yeah, these are coming from enemy, enemy records, Arabian records specifically, mm -hmm. that said that because it's a sticky liquid, it has to be sticky. If you think of an aerosol can and a lighter, it's going to make a big flame, but it's not going to stay. So you have to make a stick, sticky liquid, which would be the petroleum or the naphtha, mm -hmm. because it has an adhering factor to it, uh, along with the pitch, the tar, the resin, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff to make it actually stick and then light it on fire. Mm -hmm. You'd have to have some kind of surface to stick to. Vinegar is a really interesting thing to come up with to soak your items in so that they don't catch fire. Well, so heavy items and leather in particular. Right. We also did find that something about another way the, to, the, to put it. Not not to what. Well, I had that the leather and the the cloth soaked in vinegar didn't put it out as much as it deflected. didn't. Uh, not so much deflected, but just didn't allow it to adhere to it. But you actually had found a source that specifically stated on how to put it out. No. The sand in urine. Oh, yeah, the extinguishing of. Them. Yeah, the Sorry. extinguishing of it. Not not to prevent it from no, sticking, sticking to, to yourself, but to but to actually put it out. To extinguish the flames, I found that you know Greek fire. In order to extinguish the flames of Greek fire, you had a mixture of vinegar with sand and old urine. Yeah, that's a great smell. Now I was mentioning as well too because you've got vinegar and urine, which are both highly acidic. That could could be, be something interesting because you've got all these mixed chemicals, but. Is there something in acid that helps to prevent something, whether it's the, the naphtha, the petroleum, or some kind of part in the mixture that the acid actually... It could be. ...just works against? It's very interesting. And I, I also had the thought about the whole saltwater thing. Now, in land wars, obviously, they're just being flung from fortifications, but you're... Now, there are cripple... I can never remember. It's the Caspian Sea or the Black Sea? I can the Black remember. Sea. The Black Sea is freshwater, I believe. I can't remember. There's a freshwater source in and around that that area because there's a lot of shipwrecks. Uh-huh. And I cannot remember which one it is. But a lot of the seas over in those areas are obviously saltwater. And I'm wondering if there would be a difference of how Greek fire would work if it were on freshwater versus saltwater. So, according to Marine Insights, the website... Uh, the Black Sea was a freshwater lake around 7,000 years ago before a rise of waters in the Mediterranean Sea caused the entry of salt water. Oh. Because there's one of those lakes where like, there's a whole anaerobic portion of it where there's a lot of shipwrecks and without having oxygen in there. So uh, I thought there was something out there. As far as my understanding goes, because the rise of the Mediterranean, because the Mediterranean began to rise. Sure. And... There's a little section between, like, where Constantinople actually kind of sits in that area. There's a section that connects the, the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. So I would think it would be salt water because there is a trade of water. Hmm. Okay. I was just maybe misremembering it. You could be thinking of the Caspian? Possibly. Give us a second. Nope. She's it's also it. it's And that also one I was pretty saltwater. certain was salt water. I was just thought it was maybe the Black Sea. No. But I guess, guess not. No. At one point it was, though. No worries. Both of them are both of them are salt water. As of today, yeah. 
well, I, I don't know how I don't know I'm how the Caspian Sea was ever freshwater. The Black Sea was freshwater seven thousand years ago, so yeah. long, long, long time ago, a long time ago, and it became a mix of saltwater long, long before, before this oh, yeah. this occurred. So. so I I'm not sure how that would. I, I'm still just curious if freshwater versus saltwater plays a difference in how Greek fire actually works. If we, there's any difference. We'd need to have the recipe and <laughs> a just salt and a freshwater source, not salt water, sorry. I'm gonna say salt water. <laughs> but when people were like we said, they they couldn't figure this out. And it it was just such a mystery and they also it's called Greek fire. It's been compared to dragon's breath, basically like a dragon breathing fire because of the sound this it's very it yeah it, 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 I mean it explodes yeah and there's a large and when it sh- like shoots out of the pump there's a large whoosh sound like fire kind of makes too if you think about like, the sound of a match igniting just You'll, much bigger just imagine larger and bigger sound and the, there's illustrations and also in the video that we have referenced to you'll also see it there's a, an arc of fire but the illustrations kind of show that too yes. So, actually, you talked about manuscripts and weird history, which I think really connects into this one, because have you ever heard of the Madrid Skyliches? I have not. So, actually, the Madrid Skyliches is, Skyliches is an illustrated manuscript by John Skyliches <laughs> that the, depict the reigns of Byzantine emperors, which, of course, this would... Greek fire was used during, during the entire during length of the Byzantine Empire, yeah. Empire, well, yeah. Well, maybe not the whole length. Not but the whole length, but the majority of it. And parts of it are made up of 574 miniature illustrations. Mm-hmm. And among these 574 paintings, there are depictions there are depictions of Greek fire being used at war. Yeah. So like they're literally shooting flamethrowers off of a ship. Yes. Yes, they are. And medieval manuscripts. One of the pictures specifically, it looks like one of those cones that you use to get your voice out more. I can't remember what they're called. Speakerphone? Not an actual speakerphone, but using like the old conical system where you make a cone, slim where your mouth is. Uh The siphon siphon looks like that, but it's not. It's actually the painting of a flamethrower that they, they... put into this manuscript or was drawn into the manuscript we'll we'll share these pictures with you we'll share a link to some of these pictures and we'll actually share some on our instagram page so you can see how it was used in war at the time you can actually get like some kind of visual for it well the flames in those illustrations literally look like a dragon's breath Kind of. They just have sort of that... Uh, they kind of have some smoke coming off them, too, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. But, again, we'll have a link to it, and we'll share it to Instagram so that you can see it. Mm-hmm. So it's just... it's. I think it's a fascinating manuscript, and I would like to study that more. So mm-hmm. I want to go to Madrid so that we can find... This manuscript is held in Madrid. It as far be, as I, might be a copy online through some library, perhaps. Possibly. I... We'll be looking into that some more because I'm a total nerd. So you, um, I know you had a couple references to Byzantine history and Anna 
Omenene? No, you had that. I did. Oh, I thought you had mentioned it too. And I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that last name correctly, but I had a really interesting, going to, towards the recipes, she'd actually found partial recipes in various Byzantine records. Now, of course, again, they're not whole, but this is a quote that she had written, and it says, This fire is made by the following arts. From the pine in certain such evergreen trees, an inflammable resin is collected. This is rubbed with sulfur and put into tubes and is thrown forth by men, using it with violent and continuous breath. Then, in this manner, it meets the fire on the tip and catches the light and falls like a fiery whirlwind in the face of the enemies. Terrifying. Run. Jump, jump in the ocean. Try and search for land in the hopes that you make it. Anything. Burning alive does not sound fun. Well, we had mentioned that, uh, I mean, this started in 678, and most sources I had said that a Greek fire lasted during the Byzantine Empire for the next 700 years, which is a long time to be using something like this. And we're going to go into theories in just a second because I have a really interesting theory. There are some historians that also believe that due to the use of this Greek fire in all of the warfare, that the Byzantine Empire had is partly uh, either a major contributor or a partial factor in why the Byzantine Empire lasted as long as it did. Because when you have something that terrifying, that enemy soldiers or sailors would rather jump into the ocean and die from drowning than to be hit by em literal enemy fire. That's <laughs> a pretty terrifying weapon to have. And it was a very successful one at that. But what are your theories? Oh, that's what, what it was. Happened? That's what it was, because it's more like what happened to it. To it. Because you think you've got this, I mean, you obviously had incendiary devices and clay pot bomb, uh, bombs prior to you being used in the Greek world, but then you've got... What? <laughs> I totally forgot our theories. <laughs> uh, you've, you've got these, but you, you essentially you've now created a medieval flamethrower but it only lasted 700 years what do you mean only 700 years is a long time yeah but you've got this massive incendiary device that just by the looks of having it on your ship terrorizes the enemy how is it that it got lost to time as much as it did because I would think that other empires I want to say civilizations but other empires would have tried to obviously recreated I'm sure that they did but it only lasted well, until the early 12 or late 1200s 1300s well the, we have record of attempts to recreate it yeah but we haven't created flame flamethrowers weren't created until the 20th century true as we know them now and the last known record of Greek fire was after the fourth crusade in 1204 I wonder if it was just mm. lost to time and somehow we found something archaeologically in the record to write it down stating that Greek fire existed. I mean, I just, we have illustrations of it, and I'm assuming that it was talked about a little bit in the Skylitzes. Well, it's not talked about even now, but obviously... Well, no, I'm saying, it, I'm saying, like, upon the discovery of the Madrid Skylitzes, I'm wondering if that's how we found out about it, because it was lost to time. In... Mm -hmm. I think partly it may have even been, even though it was illustrated and it was in records, it could have possibly even been considered a myth 
up to a certain point. I'm just thinking that you have medieval records, not ancient Roman records, where you, sometimes you're not sure if they're more towards mythological or factual, mm-hmm. but you have actual medieval records of this type of warfare existing. I'm just... It mm-hmm. just does surprise me a bit that it didn't continue in some form or fashion in various later empires. I mean, just imagine how the British Empire would have been if they had this during Victoria, at the very least. If this was a major weaponry. I mean, it's, at the very least, Nelson's army, dur- an, uh, army, sorry, Nelson's navy during the Georgian... T- uh, Nelson is a whole other topic. I would love to talk about Nelson's navy. That would have been a whole different thing if they had flamethrowers. Oh, yeah. I mean, just think of Elizabeth fighting the Spanish Armada with a flamethrower. That actually sounds like a really cool thing. But That sounds like a great theory. <laughs> that just made me smile so much. <laughs> but I'm just surprised. that I'm sure people attempted it, but I, I, I'm, I'm, at the very least, you don't have the clay pot incendiaries either. Interesting thought to throw out. It it is interesting. At the same, yes, yes and no, yes and no. The idea is just. I think it can so things can so easily be lost, whether it be language or recipes, especially if they were written down. As much as we rely on written evidence, it's also something that can easily easily be taken away by erosion and time, or things like actual fire and destruction. Invasions. Invasions. I mean, we we had mentioned the Alexandrian Library. Alexandrian Library. All you have to look at is Palmyra. Mm -hmm. Palmyra's completely gone. Mm -hmm. That's true. So, and we're never going to get that city back. It's gone. The historical site is gone. As you can tell, I'm very upset about this. (laughs) Yes. So, things are so easily lost to history, and then they're just forgotten about. True, true. It so, just, it, it's an interesting concept to think about how history would be if this if continued if, past the major... If we still had the recipe, it'd still be a huge thing to this day, I think. Well, I we, honestly we have think three flamethrowers to this day. I'm talking about Greek fire in and of itself. Well, in terms of not being able to put it out, that kind of a fire, yeah. Oh my god, the world would be a completely different place. Worse. Than it is. Yeah, and it's bad enough. Uh, we live is. in a state that currently has like four fires. Over, no, we have over twenty fires Wait, in the it? state of California. I thought we just had four major fires. Maybe around Southern California oh, where we live. Oh, okay. But state of California, the whole West Coast is on fire. Let's That's true. Oregon, it. Oregon's on fire. Oregon's Washington, on, Washington, I'm surprised. Washington's on fire. Washington's yeah, on fire. Yeah, that one's surprising. Idaho's on fire right now. <laughs> Nevada's on fire, and Arizona. It's the dry season. It's the extreme dry season. It's dry season, it's hurricane season, everything's just kind of... Combination of horrible nature at its worst. So, that's all I have for today. I didn't have too much else, really. That's... so, So, that'll wrap it up for today's episode, and we hope that you are able to join us in a couple of weeks... And we want to hear back from you. Yeah, any suggestions, comments, reviews on iTunes would be awesome or anywhere else that you can give uh, reviews at. You can find us online at our Facebook Facebook page. We have an Instagram. Yeah, so our Instagram page is History Explains It All underscore podcast. And then just our Facebook page is History Explains It All. Mm -hmm. And we also have our email, which is History Explains All 
at gmail.com. Yeah, history explains it all was too long. <laughs> Just too long. <laughs> Just too complicated and long. We also have our, our main website, which will also be linked in our show notes as well. Too. Yeah. And I'm also going to put links on Facebook to all of our locations for you to find our podcast. Yes. Yes. So come join us. We hope to hear from you as well. And we we'll hope see you in a couple, couple weeks. weeks. Bye. Bye.